Frank for your scene tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about War Games. Yeah, home of the Whopper, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Figured we'd end the month with another case of almost nuclear annihilation. Well, except in the first one they actually did. Right. (laughs) So this was the better outcome of... He was still playing the game. (laughs) It was just a game, Adam. Yeah, (laughs) I love you always say that, and it makes me think of Eddie Deason, and he never said that <laughs> <I know>. line. <laughs> but Eddie Deason's like this, Adam. Yeah, that's true. He's a little more He's different. More kind of a nerd than uh, our buddy Rod Broderick. Rod Broderick. Rod Broderick. That's uh, Matthew Broderick's dad. <laughs> he was a adult film star. Rod Broderick. Uh, sadly, uh, I didn't include this, but uh, Matthew Broderick's father died shortly into production. Yeah, well, thanks yeah. for ruining my joke. Old Rod Broderick. Well, I mean, they threw a party for him because he was the greatest male porn star of all time. He was. They called him the Brick. Rod, the Brick Roderick. They didn't call him the Rod? No, it was weird. <laughs> it, was, it was more like a brick. It was oh, weird. Right. Well, Swear. we've gone so completely off topic already. <laughs> yes. Shall we play a game? Uh, yeah, let's t- war games. I'm so excited. I had not seen this movie in a long time. No, and you know, watching this movie just... Flew me back to 1983. It's summer. I didn't get summers off. Maybe then I did. I was on the track system as a kid where you're oh, like on and you'll get like two more, weeks vacation every whatever. More year round. Yeah. Oh, it was awful. It was completely year round. That yeah. sucks. Yeah. And I think maybe by this time, because I think I was at Grace Lutheran, I think I had summers off. But it's just the summer, swimming, getting out of the pool, drying off, going to the movies, baby. And this just was. Uh, if, we, I, I told you this yesterday. I have to start having popcorn with peanut M&Ms mixed in yeah. during these movies because then it's, it's just like, you know, I'm, all, I'm back there. I understand and I agree, but we're actually working, Jim. This is not for fun. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm kidding. I agree. We totally should. I could totally make popcorn. Okay, then I'll have uh, some M&Ms. I'll have broccoli and salmon. While we watch these, it'll punish myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I obviously did not see this in the theater because I was only four or five. But uh, but I could totally see that. I, I, I would have really enjoyed seeing this in the theater. I, you know. My youth was spent in the movie theater. I t- I've yeah. said before, yeah. my mom was a real estate broker and her office was next to a sixplex. And I would go to work with her, especially during the summer or on breaks. And she'd drop me off and I'd... See two or three or four movies Ugh. and just bounce and with my snacks and I wish I wish I did that when I was growing up. Oh, it was the best. I had this friend, Andy something. Andy, that's a weird last name. Something something. Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> he was from Yugoslavia. Um, <laughs> okay, Andy. I don't remember Andy's Andy. last name. Yeah, but Andy was kind of a nerd and he kept track of all of my movie viewings, like. Because I went, and I think one summer I saw every movie that came out at least once. He was your movie secretary? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? He, he loved stats. He was like, like did a, you ask him to do this? No, not at all. <laughs> he was a great kid, but he loved stats, like baseball stats. And mm-hmm. he would, you know, he was a statistician. And okay. he loved numbers and stuff. So he took it upon himself to track my 
movie going wow. and determined that I had seen every movie that came out that summer at least once. My very first class in college in film school, there was a kid stood up and held up this journal and it had a listing of every movie he'd ever seen. It had like 6,000 movies in it. And all of us let a collective groan of like, please God, we don't want to be in a class with this guy. Hey, excuse me. Hello. Uh, I just wanted to share with everybody uh, in case you're interested and I'm sure you are. Here is my movie journal. It's got over 6,000 movies, very detailed descriptions of my oh, feelings and how uh, my state of mind during it, the snacks that I ate, and a six-star-based system. Um, I've made copies for everybody in the class in case you're interested. It was like being there. That's, that was crazy. <laughs> that was I, me. It was me. I imagine, I imagine uh, your friend Andy and this guy whose name I don't remember are very similar to Eddie Deason in War Games. <laughs> Andy, no. Andy was just like a big, soft, lovable guy who yeah. was like just the sweetest. He was like a puppy dog. Yeah. Just this big, sweet guy. And the one thing I remember about Andy that was so sad is he was at home with his grandfather and his grandfather died oh. in front of him. And he called me, and he's like, I'm alone, and my grandfather's dead. And I'm like, I'm 11. (laughs) I don't know what you want me to do. You know, it was like so. Andy, much like you, I am 11. (laughs) But poor Andy, that that effed him up. Yeah, that's not good. Watching any adult die in front of you. And he was super close to him. It was just poor Andy. Such a sweet kid, too. One of the sweetest kids I've ever known. Uh, The first girl I ever dated, uh, her mother died in her arms. Yeah. Because she, she murdered her? Uh, no, it was a car accident. Oh. Uh, but uh, she became an alcoholic at like 15. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bad. I get it. It was bad. That's a lot of survivor's guilt and stuff. It was bad. What other kids do we know that either <laughs> their parents died horribly or they died? This is the funny thing about this movie is that, and, and we'll talk more about uh, uh, John Wood, who plays Falcon later, but... Uh, the whole time, they were so close to nuclear annihilation, and every time they cut to John Wood, he's just smiling. Ha! Yeah. Ah, like, you're going to figure this out, kid. Ha! Ah. I know. Oh, yeah, it was all like it's this like... mentor-mentee. But weirdly inappropriate. Yeah. Everyone's going to die. I, no, yeah. you can do it. You know what the word is. <laughs> well, well, tell me, man. We're all, we have like six seconds before it figures out the code. Oh, I'm not going to give it to you. <laughs> you got this. You got this. Oh, no, you got it. Oh, if you don't, everybody dies. Mm, stakes are high. Yeah, well, I, I mean, technically, he wanted that to happen. Can I tell you about some dinosaurs? <laughs> all right, all right. Well, take yourself back to 1983. Yeah. January 1st, the migration of the ARPANET to TCPIP is officially completed. This is considered to be the beginning of the true internet. Thanks, Al Gore, for uh, creating Gore, the internet. Yeah. You know, that whole, like... That was all made up. Like, he never claimed that he had no. invented the internet or anything. It was just some BS. Wait, 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 wait. Are you saying there are political opponents just making things up about their opponents? Adam, this is a dark day for you. <laughs> I'm going to burst your bubs. I, I can't... Politicians I, lie. I can't believe politicians? Yeah. Public yeah. servants lie, Adam. Yeah, well, he did not create the internet. Uh, the army created the internet. Army created the internet, not me. Yeah. But I did a lot of things for it. <laughs> Well, that's Al Gore. Did Al Gore yes, become Forrest Gump? Well, you listen to Al Gore, and I'll tell you, he sounds just like this. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He does, Adam. He does. He absolutely does not. But I'm questioning it because I haven't heard him actually speak in like 10 years. So I've Hey, man, bear, pig, Adam. God, all right. <laughs> February 16th, the Wami Massacre sees 13 people killed in an attempted robbery in the Chinatown area of Seattle. Wow. What? Seattle. The movie's set in Seattle. No, I okay, yeah. 
Oh, I thought you were going to ask me what this had to do with war games. No, I just wanted to know, like... Uh, it was uh, the robbery. It. The robbery went, I, and I, I will do more. We can talk about more at the uh, stepdad show, but I, I believe it was a robbery that just kind of went wrong, and a lot of people died. Ugh, it's like the, the hi-fi murders. You remember that the hi-fi case? murders? Yeah, and uh, it's like the beginning of like uh, Reservoir Dogs. Like they're going to just steal some stuff, and then all of a sudden it's just bam, bam, bam. He's just shooting people. That's why you don't bring hotheads on the job, Adam. <laughs> speaking you of be professional. Speaking of Michael Madsen, he's in this movie. Yeah. Oh, and <laughs> talk about hotheads. Then there's uh, um, Heat. Yeah. With, oh, yeah. With Wayne Grove. Hothead. Hothead. Ruined it. Always. Isn't Michael it. Madsen in that, too? I think he is, actually. For Maybe. Just feels like Michael Madsen's in every crime. He plays, uh, he played a different part in this, and we'll talk about it. He but, was uh, a beautiful young boy. He, he was. was so good. He was such a good looking young man. He definitely still came off as being kind of dumb. He came across as he honestly. I thought he was great. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I I think he's great. But the both of those guys were great because it's a very subtle but complicated scene. Oh, it is. It and uh, his reactions are really very subtle and very. You know, when he's like, "Turn yeah, the key, yeah, sir," yeah. with suddenly, the gun pointed suddenly at him. There's a gun. <laughs> it's like, whoa, buddy. The other guy's like, oh, no, I can't do it. I, I don't think I can do it. Oh, please forgive me, please. I'm going to hazard a guess that that scene was probably shot by Martin Brest, and most of it was Martin Brest. It was a great scene. Yeah. What a great opening. Yeah. And then we find out, ramp, ramp, just a test. <laughs> and nobody got shot. No, of course not. Which I thought he got shot. That's another, like, Mandela effect thing, because I oh, thought, you thought that he died. Madsen shot him. And then, and then pulls the Inspector Gadget arms and pulls both keys. <laughs> no, I thought he <laughs> shot him, and then it cut. Right. And then it was like, oh, it was a test, but the guy got killed during the test. Like, it was a serious oh. test. Oh, that would have made the movie very different. But yeah. no, we see them walking in when they're taking their chairs away, going like, mopity mopes. I guess we don't have a job. John Spencer just standing over the guy while yeah. he's working on the computer yeah. thing. What, plus, don't you think he'd get fired or re, at least reassigned if he was proven to be a, uh, not able to do his job? Reassigned. I mean, they, he said, they said 22% of them didn't do it. So I'm guessing they reassigned all of them. Seems low. I mean, technically, they did reassign everybody because they turned it over to a computer. The WAPA. Um... <laughs> It seemed kind of scary that only 22% said no. Well, I mean, the other, the other uh, 78% or whatever actually had good army training and followed their orders. Okay. Thank you, General Patton. <laughs> Are you going to slap me for being a coward? <laughs> April 22nd, a reactor shut down due to failure of fuel rods occurs at Kursk Nuclear Power, Power Plant in Russia. So June 3rd, War Games is released in the United States. Shall we play a game? Yes. Okay, well, development on war games begins in 1979 when writers Walter F. Parks and Lawrence Lasker developed an idea for a script called The Genius about... A dying scientist and the only person in the world who understands him. A rebellious kid who's too smart for his own good. You know, if you didn't know any better, you would think that also was the logline for Back to the Future. <laughs> It's the logline for all these nerd movies. These 80s scientist yeah. movies? Yeah. They always had to have some, like, you know, rebellious, not-so-smart teen. Except Matthew Broderick's really smart. No, he is. I mean, he's a hacker in this. Like, he knows what he's doing. No, he's really smart. And as they say, it's too smart for his own good. An underachiever. Yeah. Because yeah. he's bored. He's bored with regular school, and he wants yeah. to, to go do fun things. Yeah, like sit in his bedroom topless. <laughs> 
<laughs> changes changing grades. Changing numbers and changing yeah. grades. Lasker was inspired by a television special presented by P- Peter Ustinov on several geniuses, including Stephen Hawking. Peter Ustinov. You remember Peter Ustinov? He's been yeah. alive. Yeah, he was. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lasker said, I found the predicament Hawking was in fascinating, that he might one day figure out the unified field theory and was not able to tell anyone because of his progressive ALS. So, there was this idea that he'd need a successor, and who would that be? Maybe this kid, a juvenile delinquent whose problem was that nobody realized he was too smart for his environment. Yeah. The concept of computers and hacking as part of the film was not yet present. You and I were both too smart for our own environment. Yeah, there was a lot of us <laughs> that were too smart yeah. for our own environment. That pretty much sums up the Gen X crowd. <laughs> pretty much. All gifted kids with nothing to do. Yeah. This was Lawrence Lasker's first film to be produced. He comes from an entertainment family. His mother, Jane Greer, was a film noir actor in the 40s. She's great. Yeah. His grandfather, Albert Lasker, helped revolutionize marketing in the 30s. Okay. He worked with pol- politicians a lot. His step-grandmother, Doris Kenyon, was an actor. His brother, Alex Lasker, was also a writer, writing 1982's Firefox with Clint Eastwood and 2003's Tears of the Sun with Bruce Willis. Both uh, mediocre films. Uh, Tears <laughs> of the Sun is the only movie I've literally walked out of. Tears of the Sun is the reason why Bruce Willis has aphasia. He got smacked in the head oh, by a, really? like a mortar thing. Oh, really? That was the beginning of his... I just saw uh, Demi Moore just posted a thing from with his family for his birthday, and he seemed like he was doing pretty well. I hope so. Poor like he guy. was, he was singing along and joking with people and stuff. Like well, it was nice to see him be a little like himself. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's not. I mean, it's not like he's gone into full dementia right, yet. Right. And, you know, it's it's a it's a horrifyingly slow and painful yeah. and awful process. But unfortunately. They think that a an accident that happened on this set is wow. the reason why. That's crazy. Yeah, that it was, sucks it, it was because a, Tears of the Sun was not a good no, movie. No, he had a traumatic brain injury apparently uh, from that sucks from the accident. So Lawrence Lasker's other brother, Stephen Lasker, has won two Grammys for best historical albums for a Billie Holiday collection and a Duke Ellington collection. You know, okay, it seems a little. I don't know. Weird that somebody gets a Grammy for putting together a mixtape. Uh, well, he has two Grammys. <laughs> All right. I mean, okay. I know. I agree. It's a little odd. I don't know. I assume they were like remastered or something. I'm sure he I did mean, something to produce it. I don't think yeah. he just <laughs> threw them together <laughs> and goes, "All right, Grammy, please." <laughs> Sit there with two a, a dual cassette rack and like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, Firefox was a pretty fun movie. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's Clint Eastwood, and he's got to steal this uh, this experimental plane. Called the Firefox. Okay, that sounds more familiar now, but I still don't think I've seen it. He was getting a little old to be playing the part that he did, but this yeah. was also about the time that uh, Clint Eastwood came, became super into bodybuilding. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was pretty good buff. Old, yeah, he was like, buff. he looked good. He was running around without a shirt on his big old buff bod. Wow, wow. Big old buff bod. <laughs> Walter F. Parks was 28 when he sat down with Lasker to write The Genius. In 1975, he directed and produced a documentary, The California Reich, that focused on a rising neo-Nazi movement in California. Yeah, it's in central California, yeah. outside of Davis, and it's still there. Yeah, he was nominated for an Oscar for the doc, and if you want to, it's on YouTube. You can totally watch it. Yeah, if you want to be really upset. It was interesting because he, the way he presented it, he did not have any narration. He just let it, let it go and let the people present themselves. That is the best way to show this type of yes. disgusting yeah. behavior is just let them dig their own graves. You don't need any sort of editorializing. You don't need to, no, to no. 
to tell people what to think, just show them what it is. True. Although, there's probably a lot of people in the country now that would see it as a good movie. Uh, yeah, okay. He and Lasker would continue to work with each other after War Games. Lasker wrote in Parks produced Project X in 1987 with Matthew Broderick uh, in that it's a chimpanzee movie. Uh, the chimpanzees flying the spaceship. It's funny because I think I saw Project X more than War Games just because of the timing. Yeah. It was on TV all, all the time. time. Yes. It wasn't bad. It was, wasn't it like he was training... This chimp to go into space, yeah. bonded with the chimp, knew the chimp was going to die, and then like kidnapped yeah. the chimp. Yeah, they were like killing the chimps, like pushing them so hard that they would die. And he, he was, he really, it was a very animal positive movie. Yeah. Like, we shouldn't be doing this with these animals. And, and it was good. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I did too. Like, I was a huge fan of his back then. Yeah. I mean, I, I technically am a fan of his. I'm still a fan of his. Yeah. I don't know why I said back then. <laughs> back then. Uh, he was great. I don't know if uh, you saw the Modern Family episode. Oh, yeah. Where he yeah. played, uh, he thought he was on a date with Phil. Yes. So good. It was his hilarious. comic timing is so good. He's still so great. He's got the tiniest little nipples, though. They're very distracting. Oh, my God. Matthew Broderick what? and his little teeny nipples. Funny enough, I didn't notice his tiny nipples, Jim. That's the only thing I noticed. Wow, okay. They're teeny dime-sized. Uh, so Lasker and Parks also produced True Believer in 1989, starring James, Wood, Rob, James Woods, Robert Downey Jr., Yuji Okumoto, Margaret Collin, and Kurtwood Smith. That was a pretty cool movie. Remember, did you see that I movie? I don't think I ever saw it. That movie, so... Uh, this is actually a real... I'm not making this one up. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, but James Woods was like this hippie, this ex-hippie, like idealistic lawyer. Yeah. And Robert Downey Jr. is like his clerk or something. And, he, you know, he's like a pot smoke lawyer, doesn't really give an ass. And then he finally gets this case. It's like a... A big deal. Well, it's true believer. You know, it's like he... Oh. This, he he actually got like the hippie case that is, oh, you know, I and Robert Downey's got to kind of like convince him to do it. And it's okay, really good. It was back when James Woods was great. Yeah, before he took the long road to Helltown. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a short tr- road. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they would also produce Awakenings in 1990, the Robin Williams Robert De Niro picture directed by Penny Marshall that would go on to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. That was pretty good. I really liked Awakenings. I thought it was done really well. Yeah. It was the first time I saw Robin Williams in a more serious role, and, and it showed his range. Yeah, but De Niro was so good. So good yeah. in that movie. Oh, no, De Niro was so fantastic. Heartbreaking. Such a heartbreaking true yeah. story. Such a heartbreaking story. I could not imagine the hell of being trapped in your own body. Yeah, yeah. And not being able to move or speak or anything. That's just That seems yeah. like the definition of hell to me. Yeah. And then to be able to come out of that. Right, and, and yeah. then know that you're going right back into it. Yeah, you it. have to go back into it. Yeah, I would. Uh, I don't awful. think I, I. I would probably kill myself. I mean, that would be my last words before I shut off completely. Kill me, <laughs> yeah. kill me, kill me. Oh yeah. God! Uh, they would produce, and Lasker would write along with Phil Alden Robinson, who also directed the movie Sneakers in 1992. Very underrated movie. I love that movie. It's just kind of the throwback to that old kind of spy movie. It's got a really great performance by Robert Redford and a great performance by Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just this fun, underrated. Definitely underrated. I would agree. Movie that's just like, it's a great 
Sunday afternoon movie. Yeah, it's fun. It's just fun. Grab a couple beers, get yourself some sneakers. In addition to working with Lasker, Parks would produce Volunteers in 1985, starring Tom Hanks and John Candy. That was a pretty fun movie. A movie we've talked about a number of times. Yeah. I've never seen it, but it's a movie we've talked about a, a few times on the show. Well, Tom Hanks talks like this. He's very Mid-Atlantic in this. He's a small guy who's... Uh, yes. And oh, then, he's... Yeah, and they, yeah. And John Candy is insane. And, uh, <laughs> and he, that's where he met his wife. No. Um, oh, yeah. Rita Wilson. Oh, was that on Volunteers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. She was the, his co-star. Other films Parks produced or on which he served as executive producer include... The Men in Black series, The Kite Runner, Golden Globe winning Sweeney Todd, Dinner for Schmucks, Gladiator, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Ring, The Terminal, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, Road to Perdition, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Deep Impact, Twister, The Legend of Zorro, and Amistad. So I see a lot of... Uh, Spielberg and Tom Hanks movies yeah, in there. Yeah, he worked with them quite a bit. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, he's produced a ton of amazing movies. Man, I, mean, I really wanted to like Dinner for Schmucks. Yeah, it was not very good, no. <laughs> unfortunately. But there's some great ones. Gladiator was great. Catch Me If You Can was good. Yeah, um, Twister was great. I almost thought it was a good movie. I actually liked AI. I know a lot of people. Was Twister great? Yeah. I really like Twister. Okay. All right. Well, it's, a, it's a, much like you were talking about uh, the fun movie of Sneakers. Yes. I feel like Twister is that. Okay. Like, it's that kind of dumb action-y, like, it obviously, there's none of this is right. I mean, I grew up in Iowa where there's tornadoes all the time. Oh, sure. And it was one of those, like, oh, okay, you know, they made it fun. Yes. I mean, it's, I think that was the beginning of the end with me and Helen Hunt. Uh, Helen Hunt's definitely the weak point in that movie. But Bill Paxton's rad. Bill Paxton's and, great. Uh, Bill Paxton, Jamie Gertz. Oh, Jamie yeah, Jamie Gertz, Gertz is, so is great in it. in it. Yeah. Carrie Elways, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alan Ruck. Oh, yeah. From, uh, uh who also was with Matthew Broderick in, in, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he talks like that. <laughs> he sure does, Adam. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I like Twister. For me, it's like on that same level as like uh, uh, Armageddon. Like, sure. It's not something that I, I'm going to watch it on a Sunday afternoon and eat some popcorn yes. and M&Ms and just be happy. It's a, yeah. it's a had to see it at the time movie. Yeah. 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 Like uh, Highlander. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This, this is your Highlander. Pretty much. Yeah. In 1994, Parks was named president of Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. Okay. And later that year, he and his wife and business partner, Lori McDonald, were tapped to help create the DreamWorks SKG Motion Picture Studio. I must have run into him back in the day. Probably did. As the studio's president, Parks, in partnership with McDonald, oversaw development and production of all DreamWorks film projects, including three consecutive Best Picture Oscar winners, American Beauty, Gladiator, and A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. One of those didn't age that well. Yes. <laughs> I was like, wait, which one? Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of them did not age terribly well there. For a number of reasons, too, by the way. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just, yeah. Uh, Kevin Spacey. Disappointment. Uh, Parks most recently executive produced The Trial of the Chicago 7 for Netflix in 2020. Very good. Very good adaptation of that. I saw that uh, on stage. It was really cool. Oh, really? They had, uh, it was one of those kind of immersive experiences. So as you uh, walked in the theater, there were protesters oh, and all nice, sorts of nice. stuff. That's and they cool. set it up like a courtroom and we were like the, the, the you know, the galley, the gallery. Gallery. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. Great actors. Oh, man. Bobby Seale just got effed in that. They, oh, yeah. They bound and gagged him. In yeah. court. Yeah. Yeah. 
What I, I don't, I don't have anything to say Sorry, about man. it. That trail, it was just like, that whole situation was just crazy. It was, it was nuts. There is speculation that Waylon Green also helped write the film and that Tom Mankiewicz did rewrites, but the only credits recognized are for Parks and Lasker. Okay. Uh, Waylon Green, if you do not know, was nominated in 1970 for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for The Wild Bunch. Oh, such a good movie. He was awarded an Oscar in 1972 for his documentary The Hellstrom Chronicle, for which he also won the Technical Grand Prize at Cannes in 1971 and the Flaherty Documentary Award. What is The Hellstrom Chronicle? It sounds cool. It's a documentary. Uh, I don't even know what it's about. (laughs) I don't know. About a storm in hell? Yeah. Hellstrom? Hellstrom. It's a strom in hell. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he was nominated for Primetime Emmys in 1986 for Hill Street Blues in 1993 and 94 for his work on Law and & Order, and won an Emmy in 95 for his writing on NYPD Blue. They showed butts on NYPD Blue. Blue. It was the first TV butts, and it was a big old fat butt. <sighs> Dennis Farina. Right. Not Dennis Farina. Dennis Franz. <laughs> not Dennis Farina. <laughs> so, well, although Franz isn't much better. I'd probably rather see Farina's butt <laughs> than Franz's butt. Uh, Mackiewicz found success from writing a bunch of the older Bond films, including Connery's last sanctioned Bond film, Diamonds Are Forever, and Moore's first Bond film, Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die. In 1975, Mackiewicz wrote the screenplay for Mother Jugs and Speed, a dark comedy about ambulance drivers starring Bill Cosby, Raquel Welch, and Harvey Keitel. We are doing that movie, by the way. We are. He co-produced the film with Peter Yates, who later asked Mankiewicz to come to the British Virgin Islands to do a major rewrite on Yates' next film, The Deep, with Robert Shaw and Jacqueline Bissett. Yeah, I I keep forgetting that Robert Shaw was in The Deep. Yeah. Because he was also in Jaws, so that's, you know, two water movies. Yeah. I mean, two movies from Peter Benchley. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's Benchley's boy. The Deep was a huge box office success and cemented Mankiewicz's reputation as a script doctor, so it's very, very possible that he did rewrites on this movie without any credit. Probably. Uh, the whole Wailing Green thing, I don't know. I tried to find more info, and I couldn't find anything. It was just mentioned once or twice. and But it's possible. Sure. Possible. Hey, man, we got to put the possibilities in there. Yeah. The genius began its transformation into war games when Parks and Lasker met Peter Schwartz from the Stanford Research Institute. There was a new subculture of extremely bright kids developing into what would become known as hackers, said Schwartz. Schwartz made the connection between youth, computers, gaming, and the military. Parks and Lasker also met with computer security expert Willis Ware of Rand Corporation, who assured them that even a secure military computer might have remote access, enabling remote work on weekends, encouraging the screenwriters to continue with the project. Nice. Which is ridiculous to think that, yeah, we can just... Hack into, not hacking, just log in this military computer from home. It's cool. The naivete I know, of the I know. military. I mean, it's just like, who would do it? Yeah. Who's gonna, well, you know, who, why who, would they right. do it? Who's yeah. going to get in there? Martin Brest was hired to direct War Games. Brest's final NYU student film in 1972, Hot Dogs for Gauguin, starred Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. Nice. His major studio debut was Going in Style in 1979, which starred George Burns, Art Carney, and Lee Strasberg. Great movie. I've never seen it. I need to see that. I love George Burns. Art Kearney's great. It's uh, about three old dudes robbing a bank. Oh, nice. Yeah, and they wear the Groucho glasses as the... Oh, yeah, yeah. I disguises. I think we talked about it a little bit during our uh, Beverly Hills Cop episode, which Martin Brest directed. Right. So they moved on to casting. Uh, Matthew Broderick, of course, was cast as David Lightman, the lead character. David Lightman! <laughs> Broderick's first major acting role came in a production of playwright Horton Foote's On Valentine's Day, playing opposite his father, who was a friend of Foote's. Hey, uh, can you kiss my kid? Hey, how you doing? It's uh, Rod Broderick. <laughs> 
just wondering if you could cast my kid, you know, in this play with me. I'm doing it in between adult films. <laughs> okay. This was followed by a supporting role as Harvey Firestein's gay adopted son, David, in the off-Broadway production of Firestein's Torch Song trilogy. David! David! Come over here, David! It's literally straight from Independence Day. I know! <laughs> David! What are you doing, David? <laughs> then, a good review by the New York Times theater critic Mel Gussow brought him to the attention of Broadway. Didn't he also star in the Torch Song trilogy movie? Later. With yeah. uh, it was, Harvey Firestein? It was much later. But he played yeah. the... He, yeah. He redid his part. Yes. Of... Yes. Yeah. Uh, Broderick commented on the effects of that review. Before I knew it, I was this guy in a hot plea, and suddenly all these doors opened. It was only because Mel Gusau happened to come right before it closed and happened to like it. It just... It's just amazing. All these things have to line up that are out of your control. <laughs> it was... So close. Almost there. It's perfect. Yep. He followed that with the role of Eugene Morris Jerome in the Neil Simon Eugene trilogy, including the plays Brighton Beach Memoirs and Biloxi Blues. Nice. I got the blues in Biloxi. He won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Play for his role in Brighton Beach Memoirs. These memoirs of Brighton Beach. These are my memoirs. His first film role is Michael McPhee in 1983's Max Dugan Returns was also written by Neil Simon, starring Marsha Mason, Jason Robards in the titular role, and Donald Sutherland. Max Dugan Returns, and I'm not happy about it. <laughs> David Lightman in War Games was modeled on David Scott Lewis, a hacking enthusiast writers Parks and Lasker actually met. Oh, man. Hacking was so easy back then. Yeah. I was How they showed it, it was ridiculous. You just put your phone on, and then it just goes. Yeah. And it does the thing, yeah. Uh, David Scott Lewis isn't legally allowed to discuss whether he hacked military computers or not. Meaning, yes, he did, and they told him he couldn't talk about exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. War Games made Broderick a household name. Oh, yeah. He, he, he was so good in it, too. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. He was a regular kid. I mean, that's the thing about... Matthew Broderick that propelled him into stardom yeah. is he, even though he was a Broadway actor and he was, a, you know, when he was on stage, he was the guy. He could, he really knew how to play a kid. Yeah. I and, mean, and this kid was just a kid. He wasn't, you know, a great looking guy. He wasn't, he was, he, he did this part so well. Yeah. And it was such an interesting part because, you know, he's a slacker who doesn't care about anything, who basically has to save the world. Right, right. It's it's great when they when they uh, when he realizes they sees the news and he's like, oh my god, oh my god, and like him freaking out was amazing. He's such a great actor. He really is, and and he's so underrated because he makes it look effortless. Uh, Yeah, he. It it really. He's the kind of guy that you watch and you go, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Well, he made Ferris Bueller's Day Off believable. Oh. So he was so he controlled that movie. Anybody else so in that role, it would have gone off the rails. But yeah. he grounded it in this reality that this glib kid that you would probably hate if you really went to school with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Into this, you know, really likable. But yeah, you believe that people would worship yeah, him and just follow him because he's just he got a lot of charm. <laughs> uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986 made him an even bigger star. Uh, Broderick would go on to have a huge career in film, TV, and stage, appearing in more than a dozen Broadway plays since the late 90s. Yeah. Yeah, he stayed away from uh, act, uh, Broadway acting for quite a while and then finally went back to it. And he was kind of like, hey, I can, I'm getting older. I can play some other parts now. And... Well, cha-ching, cha-ching. He wanted to make some money. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think he's making as much money doing Broadway as he would be doing. No, but he doesn't stuff. need to, right? Because he made all right. the money doing right. film and TV. Yeah, and he's got his royalties coming in. He can pick and choose. Uh, he will be seen in the upcoming movie No Hard Feelings, starring Jennifer Lawrence and written and directed by Gene Stupnitsky from The Office and Jury Duty. That film looks effing hilarious. <laughs> if they can pull it off. God, it's yeah. been so long since I've seen Jennifer Lawrence in something. Yeah. It seems... I, it yeah, seems... It, I agree. It seems like I was like, what happened to her? We, it was like, that, that, that uh, well, that, you know, end of the world movie with... Uh, um, Leonardo oh, the, the Don't Look Up. Yeah. yeah. That was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's good <laughs> in the stuff she does. But this... I'm so glad to see her doing comedy again yes, because yes. she is so funny. She's great. Yeah, and she looks so. This, this film looks great. It looks like a really funny, raunchy comedy. It's something we've been missing for a long time. <laughs> I want to see Matthew Broderick trying to pimp out his son. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like exactly. It looks so good. And she's just so goofy and awkward. <laughs> so Matthew Broderick will also be seen in the upcoming limited series Painkiller on Netflix about the birth of the opioid crisis with an emphasis on Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, with Broderick playing Richard Sackler of the Sackler family. Oh, a uh, true life villain. Yeah. That man and his family are responsible for the opioid crisis. Yes. And they are responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And I'm excited to see him play that part. Oh my God, I am so excited to see him just play that awful kind of evil. He does that well. He, he can, I mean, look, the guy is a, an amazing actor. He can do anything. Yeah. But it's also, it's really nice to see him playing against type, which are these types of characters, you yeah. know, that aren't, yeah. that, that he has to mute his natural charm. Right. To play somebody. And, and he's as he's gotten older, he's also grown into playing a lot of different kind of roles, which is yeah. really cool to see. Yeah, like uh, where he played the principal in that weird post- election. Oh. In the post-apocalyptic movie or series on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, Where he yeah. played the, the villain slash principal. Yeah. Where he was still charming, but he was so evil. <laughs> yes. He's just great. I he just, was, yeah, he's fa- everything he shows up in, I'm super excited to see him. Exactly. In. He's great. <laughs> Dabney Coleman was cast as Dr. John McKittrick. Dabney Coleman got his start on the 1966 sitcom That Girl, sans his iconic horn-rimmed glasses and his mustache, which he grew in 1973. Uh, make room, make room, make oh, room yeah. for daddy. No, that's right. That's right. All but right. that was his daughter. Uh, I just want to see Dabney Coleman without the mustache. Oh, he was great. He was, he basically played the same type of, right, you know, right. sketchy, you know, <laughs> wiggly, wiry guy that's, that's, you know, not quite somebody you could trust. <laughs> he appeared as the U.S. Olympic skiing team coach in 1969's Downhill Racer, the directorial debut of Michael Ritchie, and a high-ranking fire chief in The Towering Inferno in 1974. Oh, he was great. He's that was so great. good in that, yeah. Uh, he landed the main antagonist part of Franklin Hart Jr., a sexist boss on whom three female office employees get their revenge in the 1980 film 9 to 5. Yes, and you talk like this. Hey, what you ladies doing? You you coming after me, ladies? I'm going to get you. So good in this movie. Oh, God. I, I love that movie so much. I remember seeing it as a kid, and I didn't really know what pot was, but I thought, pot looks kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Those three ladies smoked yeah. that joint. 
And the rest is history. <laughs> I never smoked pot because of that movie. I thought, wow. I thought uh, it was seemed very dangerous. It seems like it's too much fun. <laughs> I can't have that no, kind of fun. No, I need discipline. <laughs> it was this film that established Coleman in the character type with which he is most identified and has frequently played since, a comic relief villain. Or uh, the dick. Yeah, yeah. Commonly referred to as the dick. <laughs> uh, Coleman followed 9 to 5 with the role of the arrogant sexist soap opera director in Tootsie in 1982. Oh, so uh, good. Who's so good he tries to sleep with him it's so funny uh he appeared in the feature film on golden pond in 1981 playing the sympathetic fiance of jane fonda oh you old poop are you listening to the loons norman the song of the loons norman you old poop coleman followed up war games with two films in 1984 the muppets take manhattan playing a con artist posing as a theater manager yeah with a mustache Yes. Cloak and Dagger, starring Henry Thomas, playing dual roles. That is such a weird movie, but I loved it so much as a kid. I adore Cloak and Dagger so much. I think almost everybody I know of that era who saw that movie loves that movie. It was also one of those that was on all the time. It was on pay TV constantly. But such a weird, neat little thing. Like, So Henry Thomas is this like latchkey kid. Yeah. And... He's got this little toy, this little doll that yeah, he loves. Yeah, a little figure. little, but, like, army man figure. But the, he comes to life, and he's Dabney Coleman, and he helps him. And he helps him, yeah. yeah. And he and the and he actually, weird little girl. Oh, my God, the bug eyes. Yeah. yeah. Hey, he talk like that. Anyway. But uh, his, it, it, the, the, the fictional hero guy looks just like his dad, who happens to be in the Air Force right. and is not around a lot. It's so and good, and it's so it's, good. It's a super deep movie, and I... Love that movie, and eventually we will cover it. We have to. And also, Henry Thomas, man, what a great little actor. Such a great. What so a good. great, uh, still a great actor, but yeah. so good in this. Henry Thomas is one of the real kid kids. Like, yeah. he, when you saw him, it was like watching one of your friends. He yeah, was like exactly. a real kid. There was no Hollywood BS with him, whether it was E.T. or this or whatever he played. He just came across so real. Uh, yeah, always. It was great. Uh, we'll definitely, definitely cover in Cloak and Dagger at some point. Oh, yeah. Gives me an excuse to buy the new Blu-ray that came out a couple months ago. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Cloak and Dagger. Coleman has had a long career, most recently appearing in an episode of Yellowstone at the age of 89. Uh, he's now 91 and still working as much as he can. He's not stopping. Good. I love him. He is such a great actor. Such a great actor. And plays menace, especially as he got older. He has just got that gravitas that... As a younger man, he didn't really have. He was the goof. He was a goofy guy. Yeah. Like yeah. even, um, I think he was in Modern Problems, Chevy Chase, playing yeah. the same role. Always playing the kind of, you know, the annoying guy. But as he got older, he kind of just grew into this. Okay. He was so good in Boardwalk Empire. Okay. It, I, it might be my favorite thing he's ever done. Wow. Because okay. it was such a layered and just menacing part. I don't. I. I never. I watched the first season of Boardwalk Empire, and I didn't finish it. So Great I, show. I'll need to watch that. Yeah, that that was one of my favorite HBO shows. Nice. Yeah. Nice. John Wood was cast as Stephen Falcon and the voice of Whopper, the Doomsday Machine. Uh, Wood started on stage, known for his performances in Shakespeare and his lasting association with Tom Stoppard. Wait. So he does the playwright. Shall we play a game? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he did the lines and they computerized them. But no, no, there was actually no modulation (laughs) at all. He's just that good. Well, I sound exactly like it, so I get it. I get it. Wow. Okay. He was nominated for a Tony in 1968 for Rosencrantz and Gildensterger Dead. Love that play. And in 1975 for Sherlock Holmes. 
Uh, yeah, he originated one of the parts in, in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead because it was Tom Stoppard, and Tom Stoppard is amazing. Yeah. In There's 19... a theater named after Tom Stoppard in Los Angeles. That's true. In 1976, he received a Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play for his performance in Stoppard's Travesties. Uh, do you think he and, Ma- uh, and Matthew Broderick just sat around talking theater all day? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Uh. This is why uh, Falcon just kept smiling at him at the end. Hey, did you ever work with uh, John McKeekies? <laughs> yes, I did work with John McKeekies. He was a great director. It was on a production. It was off Broadway production of uh, Hair. I don't. We did it as uh, as if we were all chipmunks. Oh, that sounds really great. Uh, you know, I did uh, the Biloxi trilogy. Okay. The character the of... The Rain Breeze trilogy, sorry. Yeah. The Eugene trilogy. The Eugene trilogy? Yeah. The character of Falcon was inspired by and named after Stephen Hawking with the appearance of John Lennon, whom the part was written for. Oh, he would have been awesome. It would That would have been so bizarre. Uh, Hawking was approached to be in the movie, but didn't want Hollywood to exploit his disability, so he said no. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lennon was interested in the role, but was murdered in New York while the script was in development. Ah. Oh. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see John Lennon. I didn't realize that he had any interest in going into acting. He had done a little bit. I mean, beyond beyond the Beatles Help movies and, and stuff. Yeah, the Yellow Submarine stuff. But, but I didn't know that he was... Because that would have been an amazing third act for him, or second act for It him. would have been, but honestly, it would have been distracting Probably. to see Probably. John Lennon as Falcon, I think. Yeah. Because it would have been, yeah. there's John Lennon, hey. you know, and... and I think this guy, we didn't really know who he was, and he just looked the part. He was so good. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was not really known to American audiences. Right. Yeah. After War Games, he appeared in... The Purple Rose of Cairo, Orlando, Shadowlands, The Madness of King George, Richard III, Sabrina, and Chocolat. Along with others, uh, a lot of very uh, high-end hoity-toity movies. I love The Madness of King George. I mean, all these are great. Orlando's a good movie. Sabrina's a good movie. You I know, mean, he peed blue. Right? That's weird. Well, that's how King George went crazy. No. He was like lead he poisoned was, or something. He was just staring at his blue pee, and he no, was like, this is crazy. The blue pee was a uh, <laughs> <was, laughs> side effect of his lead poisoning. Or Why whatever. is it blue? Why is it blue? Because he was sad, Adam. Yeah. He had sad urine. <laughs> oh. In 2007, Wood was appointed a commander of the Order of the British Empire in the Queen's New Year Honors List. Hmm. Another BCE. Uh, so many of them. Apparently they just hand them out like candy. Yeah. You want a BCE? Yeah, I guess. Uh, Wood died of natural causes in August 2011 in Gloucestershire at the age of 81. It's weird to think of him as 81. He was just like a very solid, kind of handsome yeah. guy. And he played that part so well because so good. there's so many layers to that to Falcon. Yeah. Because he's a man who's completely detached himself from society and reality. His grief was so much that it destroyed him right. to the point where he doesn't care if the world is destroyed or not. Uh, he wants it to be destroyed. Yeah. Like He specifically was like, yeah, I live three wi- miles away from a primary target. Exactly. Because I purpose. want to die first. And it was, it's just that seeing that young guy, you know, but, but it was Matthew Broderick's zeal that kind of brought him back, you yeah. know? Yeah. It was really interesting and that whole uh, sequence with them going to visit him and the way he reacted and him showing him the dinosaurs and, and just the resistance in his face. And oh, the, yeah. And the yeah. silent acting and the fact that, you know, they take off and he has – you can see when they cut to him, the wheel's turning. Right, right. Me, maybe I'm wrong. Right. Maybe I'm and wrong. And then when the helicopter comes, it's all justified. It makes sense. His arc 
is so good and just proves what a great actor he yeah. is. As we were talking before, though, you know, at the end where every the world is literally about to end. Whopper is just getting one code piece after the <laughs> we're like two two code chunks yeah. away from the whole world being destroyed. Eight numbers, eight numbers. What do you think? Oh, you could do it yourself. I could help you right now, but I'm not going to. Oh, if you, you don't discover it yourself, it's not worth it. You got this, David. You've got this. Come on, David. What were we talking well, about? Well, I mean, honestly, for him, it's a win-win. Because if the world ends, okay. And if it doesn't, he's got a new friend. Right. But if it does, he's not three miles anymore. He's down in the Whopper uh, bunker. Yeah. He's going to live. And he's going to live with all them. He was thinking about how much he was going to eat Barry Corbin after they got buried alive. Don't eat me up. Because I'm a big goo uh, he was so good, though. I, I, yeah, you're right. His his arc is very good. He did a lot with the little bit that he was given. Everybody um, who was cast in this movie was perfectly cast. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Ali Sheedy was cast as Jennifer Mack. Oh God, loved her so much. So Still do. I had the hugest crush on her uh, from this movie and and Breakfast Club. Like. Well, because she was the the like nat, the regular girl. Yeah. She's beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous woman and young lady, but like a natural kind of beauty that you would have. Sitting next to you in English class. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Hey, she right, had yeah. this kind of down to earth reality to her that made her just like Broderick. Mm-hmm. They really knew how to play teenagers. Yeah, they yeah. really knew how to play them real. And her part could have been, you know, because it's like she's not really the popular girl of this girl or that girl. Yeah, their friendship is really organic. It comes together in a way that's really fun. Yeah, and she. Is a very fun, adventurous person. The fact that she comes to Seattle and, <laughs> right. like, surprise! She, she just meets him, or in Salem. She what are you doing here? Yeah. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> but I wanted to see what happened. Yeah. And it's so great. And they, they had a great chemistry together. Yeah. And it's a really fun uh, developing of their relationship over the time. Yeah. And how they their little smooches They're, always seem to get interrupted. Them getting together, like quote unquote together in the movie, is so organic and yeah. so natural, and and makes sense. You yeah, know? I mean, and it, and it wasn't. You could tell it wasn't either of them wanting to get with the other person. Sure, it was Not just at the beginning. Like, yeah, no, it was just like I like you're you're fun. Okay, like we have a good time. Let's hang out, and uh, it was good. Yeah. It was a very very realistic portrayal of a high school friendship into a romance. Exactly. At the age of six, Sheedy decided she wanted to be a ballet dancer until the acting bug took over. Sheedy started acting in local stage productions as a teenager. She moved to L.A. at 18 and received a BFA from USC around her busy acting career. Nice. Yeah, she was one of those people that moved out to L.A. and immediately started working. Yeah. 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 (laughs) She she appeared (laughs) in several television films in 1981, including Splendor in the Grass, a remake of the 1961 film starring Natalie Wood. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw that. No, I don't. I didn't see it either. She had a three-episode arc on the television series Hill Street Blues. Yeah, she did. Uh, She made her feature film debut in Bad Boys in 1983, starring Sean Penn playing Penn's humiliated girlfriend. Well, humiliated is a very... Nice way of saying that she was, I think, brutally raped in that movie. Uh, yeah, he treated her like crap. Well, he, she, she, have you seen Bad Boys? I don't think so. Okay, Bad Boys is, I think, Sean, one of Sean Penn's first movies, too. Yeah. And it's basically, he goes to, like, juvie or whatever, and he's got this rivalry against this other kid. Mm. But I think that kid... Like, gets out and rapes Ali Sheedy, and there's this whole... It's a brutal... It's a great movie. Sounds terrible. It's brutal. It is a brutal movie, but it's really good. And, and, you know, she's great, and... uh, What's his name? Sean Penn. 
And Sean Penn is, I mean, Sean Penn is just remarkable. And as oh, yeah. a kid, he yeah. was remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, 83 was around the time, because I think that was Fast Times was around yeah. 83. And it's just like polar opposite of yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Fast Times. War Games catapulted Sheedy into stardom with the media, including her in the Brat Pack, who counted among their members Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, and Molly Ringwald. She never liked being part of that. No. No. Uh, Brat Pack movies included The Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire in 1985. Yep. Uh, things got very rough for Sheedy during this time, eventually being admitted to a rehab clinic in 1985. Oh, no. In the 90s, she was treated for a sleeping pill addiction. Ugh. She had some bad, yeah, she had some bad times. Well, that's, I mean, sleeping pills, that seems like something that she probably got into for work and then, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, she made a strong comeback in 19, 1998 as a drug-addicted photographer in High Art, co-starring Rada Mitchell. Oh, what a great movie. Have you seen that? No, I've never seen it. Uh-huh. I, I didn't even realize I need to watch it. Uh, she won an Independent Spirit Award, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association Award for Best Actress, and the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actress for the performance in High Art. Yeah, everybody thought she should have got the Oscar nomination. Yeah. She was grabbed. Grabbed. Uh, she most recently can be seen in Single Drunk Female, the TV series where she plays the mother of a 28-year-old alcoholic who is forced to move back home. I've seen a couple of... I, oh, yeah? I saw a couple episodes of that, and, and uh, it wasn't bad. It was pretty good. I'm curious. I, I, there's been a lot of billboards around L.A. of the show, so I'm curious to check it out. I'm really surprised, that because I think that kind of started around the pandemic and then was gone for a few years. And oh, really? Yeah. I, it's, it's still... Oh. And it's back. I didn't... Wow. I thought it was kind of Yeah, there is, there's definitely a second season. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Weird, yeah. Uh, Barry Corbin was cast as General Jack Berenger. Barry Corbin, the General Jack Berenger. Corbin is named after Peter Pan author J.M. Barry. Uh, his technically Barry is his middle name. Uh, That's my middle name. My first name is Jim Bob. It, no, I think it's Alan or something. Uh, he did a couple of guest spots on TV specials before being cast as Sheriff Fenton Washburn on Dallas in 1979. Dallas. He would appear in nine episodes, but it would lead to a ton of parts in movies and TV, mostly as law enforcement or versions thereof. Also, paired in uniform as an army man. <laughs> yeah. And, and I literally had no idea what you just said. I was playing an army man. <laughs> yeah, a lot of army men, yeah. In 1980, he appeared in three films, playing John Travolta's Uncle Bob Davis in Urban Cowboy. Hey, Uncle Bob Davis. Oh, you're an urban cowboy. He goes, well, I'm a cowboy. He co-starred with Clint Eastwood in Any Which Way You Can. Right turn, Clyde. He did not play Clyde. No. <laughs> go punch you. And he also appeared as the warden in the movie Stir Crazy. Ah, such a great movie. Great movie. Again, another one we're going to cover. Uh, he's always going to play the rodeo. <laughs> in 1981, he appeared in four TV movies. Uh, in 1983, along with his appearance in War Games, he co-starred in the TV miniseries The Thornbirds, as well as starring in a short-lived TV show, Boone, which was canceled after 10 episodes. Thornbirds was a juggernaut. Richard yeah. Chamberlain was like the king of the TV movies. He did Shogun, The Thornbirds. I think The Thornbirds, he played the... Then he played the priest. Yeah, who's having who an affair. Had an affair, yeah. The disgraced yeah. priest. Yeah. It's just, just showing that Barry Corbin was working nonstop. You're a priest. You shouldn't be kissing that lady. 
I'm gonna tell on you. In war games, Corbin ad-libbed most of his lines. Uh, General Berenger was based on General James F. Hardinger of the U.S. Air Force, the then-commander-in-chief of NORAD, whom Parks and Lasker met while visiting the base, and who, like Berenger, favored keeping humans in the decision loop. His character was great because he wasn't just a stereotypical, you know, general. Yeah. He was very concerned about murdering the world. Yes. And taking the human factor out of it, even with a 23% failure rate, he still thought it was the best way to go because you have to have that human element just in case. I mean, we talked about during the day after show about all of these near misses. And and if it wasn't for people who had a clear head and, and took a beat and a breath, We'd yeah. all be dead. Yeah, mostly Russians who were like, whoa, yet. <laughs> not going to do that. The thing that I loved about his character was at the end when he was given the chance to either blow up the world or wait. Right, right. And he waited. He ch- yeah, he, he showed that he trusted the people mm-hmm. to tell him that the computer was wrong. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's... Dabney Coleman freaking out. Press the button, press the button, press the button. And then <laughs> Dabney Coleman just wanted to murder the world. But the look on his face yeah. after all this stuff goes down, it's amazing acting. And it's so subtle and such a quick shot. But there's a shot of Dabney Coleman and the look of shock on his face that it wasn't real and then he almost did it. Right, right. Is brilliant, yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. And I love the way that all these guys turn around. And even Dabney Coleman, you know, at the end is like, you know, thank God we did. You know that we didn't do this. <laughs> I love when he uh, ruffles Matthew Broderick's hair, and then Matthew Broderick takes yeah. part of his hands and ruffles his hair, and then they give a hug. That was just such a cool. It was. It was so believable. Yes, yeah. it's just like it's. You don't need guys that are just jerks to be jerks and are jerks right. throughout. Like Martin Landau in Meteor, where you know yeah. he comes around and is like, "I am sorry, I was wrong." Right. That's right. how it goes. I just hate these movies where the guy is just a jerk until the very end, even when he's proven wrong, right. just because they need a jerk. Right. 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 And then it's it's interesting because then you go back and you think, "Oh, well, he was being a jerk because he was under so much pressure." And he also believed in and He really thought that everyone was going to die and he needed to do this. Yeah. He and was a true believer. Yeah. of his Technology. Of, of the technology. Yeah, of and, yeah. yeah but uh, Barry Corbin uh, was proven right. Yeah. <laughs> but the, be- the, best, the best moment for Barry Corbin is they all are excited. They win and they're all excited. And then they find out the computer is trying to hack the codes. And he's like, well, I guess we're going to do this. Yeah. And he's like, well, I guess we're going to have to nuke everybody. Yeah. Which I'm like, wait a minute. You're going to destroy the world because of. A mistake on our end? And uh, I guess. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, at that, yeah. It seems pretty, I don't know. N- messed up? Counterintuitive? <laughs> I don't know. Behringer's array of medals indicate that he would be around 60 at the time of the movie. Uh, Barry Corbin was 43. Oh. Which, by the way, he was 43. I thought he was older than that in this movie. Yeah, well, everybody looked older back then. Yeah. Uh, Corbin has had a long, long career. Uh, He has not stopped working nonstop since the early 80s. Oh, and still amazing. No Country for Old Men. He was awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. uh, As retired astronaut in Northern Exposure from 1990 to 1995, he earned two consecutive Primetime Emmy Award nominations. As he should have. The the character work on that show was ridiculous. There was just so... I mean, yeah, it's one of those quirky whatever shows, but it also had very well-rounded characters Right. That weren't one-dimensional. You know, like he played an extra astronaut. 
who, yeah. you know, was used his fame to kind of, you know, make yeah. the town bigger, get people in there. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he was just so good. Always good. Always good. And uh, I just always. had one of those faces that, you know, lights up a room. He just seemed like a good dude. Uh, he had a recurring roles in One Tree Hill from 2003 to 2009. Never saw it. Uh, I did because I worked on that show. He I was know. the only actor I didn't get to meet. And I got to be honest, <laughs> I was so disappointed. Well, yeah, because he's the best actor on the show. Yeah. Uh, the Closer from 2007 to 2012. Uh, the Ranch from 2016 to 2020. And most recently can be seen in six episodes of Tulsa King with Sylvester Stallone. You're the king of Tulsa. Tulsa King. I also, uh, he has the best arc, not arc, but he's got the best guest stars on Modern Family, like playing Cam's mother, oh, yeah. Cam's dad. Cam's dad. <laughs> he's so good. I'm going to get, <laughs> it's like, well, Cam, Cam's the woman at the relationship. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Uh, he will also be seen in Martin Scorsese's upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon at the ripe age of 82. Good. Just keep working, buddy. You're so good. There is literally no stopping Barry Corbin. That he is going to go stop me. He's going to act until he drops. I hope so. I mean, I hope he doesn't drop. No, but he's going to act. He's got so much good years. So many good years. Give us him. another 10 or 15. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's get some uh, some meteor ages right is that the yeah. one that everybody was like 100 when they died yeah was it yeah. yeah yeah uh Juan and clay was cast as patricia healy uh she was the one of the norad uh, assistants oh was she the one that w- that ate the gum yes the weird scene where she takes dabney coleman's gum and then eats it oh it's so gross or she starts chewing it it's super weird yeah she was in tons of stuff she's so she recognizable but yeah she she was it was an interesting part she was kind of like Dabney Coleman's second. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it was uh, not a very flushed out part. It was funny. I mean, she was kind but, of comic relief yeah. and was just kind of there. Uh, she was actually a kindergarten teacher in Connecticut before she became an actor. I can see that. Uh, she originated the role of Raven Alexander in the daytime soap opera The Edge of Night from 1976 to 77. The Edge of Night. And she chose to leave to pursue other projects. She was a contender for the role of Wilma Deering in the 1979-81 to television series Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, but lost the role to Aaron Gray, who returned to reprise her role in the 19, from the 1979 theatrical release. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, my ears were burning. Heard you uh, talking about uh, a Jew and Clay. <laughs> <laughs> We called her Juanin. <laughs> Juanin? Well, in the 25th century, we p- pronounce all J's. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, well, hey. So, Juanin Clay, she was so nice coming in. You know, if anybody else could play the part, it would have been her. She would have been great. Yeah, but she just wasn't good enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, gotta get back. Oh, boy. Oh, 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 oh boy. Buck and Tweaky, getting into some shenanigans. I gotta get out of here. Love you guys. Almost called Buck Chuck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Chuck Rogers on the 25th century. Chuck was Buck's brother. <laughs> oh. They didn't make it to the 25th well, century. Well, they, they made a documentary about Buck and Chuck. Yeah. No, don't watch it. It <laughs> doesn't do, go the way you it. think it will. No. Uh, <laughs> Clay later guest starred in the Buck Rogers episode Vegas in Space, playing Marla Landers, who briefly partnered with Buck. Yeah, she sure did. Sorry, had to come back. Just, <laughs> just, a, just one more. Yep. Just had to clarify. Yeah. 
for a guess. Yeah, which is great. Thanks, Colonel Wilma. Back to the future. (laughs) (laughs) Clay would make a number of guest TV appearances throughout the 80s and 90s until her untimely death from a lengthy illness in 1995 at the age of 45. Ugh, too young. Disappointing. So disappointing. She was a really great actor. She was. Michael Ensign was cast as Behringer's assistant. Uh, again, not in this movie a ton, but he's one of those faces that you're like, okay. Yeah. Uh, Ensign made his first credit appearance in 1978's Midnight Express, directed by Alan Parker and written by Oliver Stone. Oh, God, that's a brutal movie. Have you ever seen that movie? No. About a tourist who's uh, smuggling heroin into Morocco, oh, yeah. I believe. Yeah. You don't want to go to that prison, baby. No, no. He uh, he lost a testicle. Oof. Ouch. Beaten so bad, he lost a testicle. Oof. Uh, before War Games, he made Spoiler alert. notable appearances in 1978's Superman as a newscaster and in 1982 with Pink Floyd the Wall as a hotel manager. He also played the hotel hotel manager of the Cedric Hotel in 1984's Ghostbusters. That's it. I won't pay it. Yeah, that's what people will recognize him from. If you want to picture Michael Ensign, think of the hotel manager from Ghostbusters. That's outrageous. I didn't agree to that. I won't pay it. <laughs> well, we can just put it right back. We'll just put it back. Okay, okay, fine. Ensign very quickly became a that guy, a character actor who would people people would recognize but never knew his name. He's appeared in hundreds of TV shows and films. Oh, yeah. He's also done voiceover work for a number of video games, uh, playing Dr. Nefarious Tropy in the Crash Bandicoot series. Dr. Nefarious Tropy. Uh, Bioshock 2, L.A. Noir, and Infamous 2. Yeah. Uh, video games that are very fun. All of those games are great. Yeah. Uh, Ensign's still around at 79, but he hasn't appeared in a TV or film since 2018. Oh. Yeah. William Bogert was cast as Mr. Lightman, uh, David's dad. He's <laughs> He was so great. Bogart is best known for his roles as the neighbor Brandon Brindle on the TV series Small Wonder from 1985 to 89, and as Kent Wallace, the host of Chappelle's show's Frontline Spoofs from 2003 to 2004. Yeah, we, Small Wonder. Small Wonder is such a bizarre show. It's about a guy who makes a little girl robot. And yeah, there's nothing weird about and they that. they adopt her as a child. And she's got a brother who doesn't really like having a robot for a sister. And I think her name was Becky or something, but it was like an acronym. I, yeah. It was something weird. Ha, ha, ha. And she talked like this. It was some weird show. I remember really liking the show. Yeah, everybody I did. didn't recall it being on for four years. Yeah, no. And it was like a syndicated show, too, yeah. I think. Yeah, it was on all the time. Oh, so weird. It was like Punky Brewster. It was just one of those kind of weird shows that everybody watched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his first credited role was as the TV anchorman in 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. Nice. So great movie. Bogart's television guest appearances included... <gasps> Gilmore Girls, Hope and Faith, Chappelle's Show, Law and Order, Ed... Profiler, Spin City, Third Rock from the Sun, Melrose Place, Empty Nest, Mr. Belvedere, Growing Pains, Amen, The Wonder Years, Webster, Matlock, Trapajohn, M.D., The Colbys, Benson, Not Slanding, Heart to Heart, The Greatest American Hero, Square Pegs, The Fall Guy, Hill Street Blues, Fantasy Island, The Incredible Hulk, MASH, Alice, The Facts of Life, The Jeffersons, Quincy M.E., One Day at a Time, Barney Miller, Lou Grant, It Is Enough, Beretta, McMillan and Wife, Stasky and Hutch, Police One, Taxi, Columbo, Mary Tally Moore Show, and The Doctors. Yeah, he was in everything. <laughs> Literally everything. I really uh, liked the, the, the parents of David Lightman in this movie could have literally been taken from, like, Better Off Dead. Oh, yeah. Like, they were so weird. 
But they were just real, too. I know, I know. But it was like, it was like if the movie was different, it could have gone this weird kind of different like comedy direction because the parents were just so odd. But it, it captured that beautiful truism of the 80s was the two-parent working home. Right. Where you've got the latchkey kid who's kind of left to his own devices and to his own devices ends up, well, almost destroying the world. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they were just concentrating on his grades and stuff. But she's busy being a real estate broker and he's busy doing his thing. Yeah. It was great. I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved every minute they were in, but they were just, it was just that, like, yeah, yeah, people are weird. Yeah. <laughs> but it was so true to the time, which yeah. was so great. Yeah. Bogart was married to Erin Ozker, a puppeteer best known for her work with the Muppets until her untimely death in 1993 at the age of 44. Good Lord, what's with these women dying in their 40s? I don't know. I don't know. Bogart died in New York on January 12, 2020, at the age of 83. Aww. I mean, yeah. that's like almost... That's like 30 years without his wife. Yeah. Sad. Sad, sad. Uh, John Spencer was cast as Captain Jerry Lawson. Turn the key, sir. (laughs) Despite appearing in a number of films, Spencer is best known for his TV work. He began his career on The Patty Duke Show. Oh, yeah. Uh, Spencer played Tommy Mullaney on L.A. Law from 1990 to 1994. Oh, he was great. In 1999, Spencer was cast as Leo McGarry on The West Wing. I'm on The West Wing. What do you say, (laughs) Mr. President? Let's do some stuff. Uh, Spencer's character was White House Chief of Staff to the fictional U.S. President Josiah Bartlett. President Bartlett, come on, we need to do stuff. People are protesting. <laughs> like Spencer, McGarry was a recovering alcoholic and compulsive worker. Spencer quit drinking in 1989 after 20 years of hard abuse. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Spencer's role in the show earned him the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series in 2002. He was great. Unfortunately, Spencer died of a heart attack in a Los Angeles hospital on December 16th, 2005, four days before his 59th birthday. Oh, those 20 years caught up to him. Yeah. I mean, you can only abuse yourself so much, and, and your body will break down. Maybe. I don't know. But there's all these, also these guys that, you know, drink. I, I think the problem is stopping. Because yes. it seems like the guys that drink and smoke live to, like, 80 or 85. I, I, know, I know a couple of guys that were in their late 30s, early 40s that... Did a lot of hard drugs for a long time and then stopped, and they had been sober for like 10 years, and eventually they had heart problems. Yeah. Well, they say, you know, most smokers don't get lung cancer unless they stop smoking. Right. Right. That's not to say don't quit. (laughs) You shouldn't start. Yeah, don't start. (laughs) Trust me. Uh, Michael Madsen was cast as Lieutenant Steve Phelps. Turn the key, sir. (laughs) Turn the key. That is not protocol. Ah, I love how they were talking about weed. Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, oh, it was great. Me, uh. Yeah, and, and oh my God, Michael Madsen was just a good looking young man. So he was. tall and skinny with those beautiful blue eyes. He was. And I and, and earlier I was saying that he, he's not very smart, but he kind of played that like army, like, like not blockhead, but like just that guy that takes orders. Like right. he, he definitely was that guy. He was the guy who, you know, in, in terms of the army, did the right thing. Right, right. It was John Spencer who was uh, that pot-smoking commie <laughs> who didn't turn his key. He didn't want to murder the world. One of Madsen's first roles was in the 1983 TV movie Special Bulletin about a terrorist group bringing a homemade atomic bomb aboard a tugboat in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. A tugboat. In order to blackmail the U.S. government into disabling its nuclear weapons, and the incident is caught live on television. Ooh. Uh, the movie simulates a series of live news broadcasts on the fictional RBS network. We're back here at RBS. This tugboat is filled with nukes. uh, At some point in one of our early episodes, 
I read about this movie and ended up watching it. Really? Uh, it's on YouTube. You can totally watch it. But it was the first, as far as I can tell, it was the first kind of after, obviously, like War of the Worlds and the radio broadcast. It was one of the first things that kind of was released as being like, hey, this is happening. Madsen, siblings with actor Virginia Madsen, would go on to appear and star in dozens of features. Oh, my God. He's been in everything. Everything. Uh, t- yes. He is known for his collaborations with Quentin Tarantino. Uh, he's appeared in the films. Reservoir Dogs. So Madsen was also in... Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's really funny, because as he went, his his parts seemed to get smaller and smaller in Tarantino's yeah. movies, but... Well, I mean, he, I mean uh, but they were all important parts. Yeah, yeah. You know, they all... He... There was always room for Michael Madsen. Oh, he's so good. He's such a great actor. Since the late 90s, Madsen has averaged appearing in a half dozen movies every year. Oh, yeah. If at least, because he's also one of those guys that, you know, does the, I'll take, uh, f- you know, $500,000 for two days work. Yeah. So he shows up in all of these straight to videos. I don't even think it's 500000 I think he takes less than that. Whatever it is. But he works for like two days yeah. and then takes his check and goes home. Constantly working. He most recently can be seen in Waking Karma, where he plays a cult leader torturing his daughter into becoming the new leader. Uh, I watched the trailer, but it actually looks kind of interesting. Interesting. Uh, and The Wraith Within, playing a sheriff with a deadly secret. And that does not include the three other movies that I found out after I finished the script that are coming out in the next like six months. Not to mention that video game, that weird video game. Yeah. That heist game that has like oh yeah that's he right and and Danny Glover and uh, and so, Chuck Norris and all these guys. I, the only reason I put a half dozen movies every year is because there was like three or four years where he only did three movies, but literally there were years where he did ten. Yeah, ten movies in one year. Oh, the guy's always working, and I think that video game did already come out and bomb. Oh, but, did uh, it? Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it's a shame because it was such a cool. It concept. looks really cool. Yeah, it looks yeah. like a lot of fun. I'll have to look that up. Uh, so to round out more of the cast, just a couple quick hits. Uh, Alan Blumenfeld was cast as Mr. Liggett. Uh, Blumenfeld's best known for playing Greg Grinberg's father in both TV shows Felicity and Heroes. James Tolkien, uh, also one of the Department of Defense guys, cast as Mr. Wigan. Tolkien's best known as the principal in the Back to the Future series. McFly! McFly, what are you doing, McFly? He literally plays the same character in every single movie. McFly, you're causing a lot of problems for me, McFly! Maury Chaikin was cast as Jim Sting. Uh, Chaikin is a character actor best known for playing Detective Nero Wolf, among many, many others. One of the movies I remember him most in is Unstrung Heroes, with he and Michael Richards playing these brothers that are kind of hoarders. Oh, and weird. they have this nephew that comes and hangs with them. I think he lives with them for a while or something. Yeah. But his portrayal of this psychologically damaged man, and, and Michael Richards, too, their performances were amazing. If you haven't seen Unstrung Heroes, it I 100% recommend it. It's a great little what, indie film. What year was it? It was like 95, 1995. Okay. It's so funny because I did not... We were watching this and you're like, Maury Chaikin's so good. And I was like, wait, that's Maury Chaikin? Yeah, he was also... Because a, yeah. he j- I, I'm so used to him being like the older, yeah. like gray-haired like guy that I've seen in all this stuff. Yeah. And it was like... He looks so young. Yeah, Devil in a Blue Dress, another amazing movie. That yeah, he was I mean, in. he was in Twins. Like he was in, he was in a ton of stuff. He oh, was yeah. so good, so good. Just a great, great actor. One of those guys that always did great work, no matter if he was in Meatballs Three, right, or if he was in Unstrung Heroes. You know, it was always the same amazing performance. Yeah, he, and somebody that we'll go deeper into once we. Uh, um, He's in something that he's a little more in. Yeah. Just the one scene that he was in here, having to take control of Eddie Deason. 
Yeah. Uh, who was cast as Malvin. Uh, Deason is best known for wandering on, around intersections in Hollywood muttering to himself. Hey, I'm Eddie Deason. Um, <laughs> Teddy Deason was in a ton of stuff. Honestly, as we talked about, I think you were the one who mentioned this, that it's a really great portrayal of like Asperger syndrome. Yeah. Before people yeah. knew what it was. He's definitely on the spectrum. Hey, give me that. I want to see it. And then, you know. Well, and the fact that Maury Chinkin is like, hey. Hey, remember, you remember when we talked about you? Say, well, hey, you remember when we talked about you being off-putting and doing the wrong thing? Well, you're doing it now. Yeah. It was like, oh. Okay, Jim. Okay, Jim. Whatever you say, Jim. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a great, I mean, for the small part, it was great. Uh, it was, yeah. And it was, and it worked. I mean, that scene totally worked. Like I, the, even the the greatest acting from Maury Jenkins where the soon as Eddie Deason started talking, he just gets that sad, like, oh, jeez. I want to see it, Jam. Let me see it, Jam. And and also, I love Ali Sheedy's reaction just watching these guys. She's <laughs> just like, what am I <laughs> what? watching? What is this? Why am I hanging out with this guy? Ah, yeah. this is funny. <laughs> this is funny. It's government, Jam. It is. God, the back door. Everybody knows about the back door. Don't give away our secrets, Jam. You're giving away our secrets about the back door. You can only take Deason in small doses. No, oh no. He was in the perfect amount in this movie. A <laughs> little bit of Deason goes a long way. A uh, little bit of Deason on my mind. Uh, yeah. Is Eddie Deason still alive? He is. Uh, he's not acting anymore. Oh. But, uh, but he's, he is 66. He's still around. I mean, maybe he's not acting because he's not getting the parts. But uh, Maybe. But he was in such demand yeah. that he had to like turn down a lot of roles because he was working all the time. Yeah, he worked constantly. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I remember him most from Greece. But like, he's he was anytime anybody in the eighties needed that part. Oh yeah, it was Eddie Deason. He was supposed to play Spaz and Meatballs. Oh really? He turned it down in nineteen forty one. Oh. He also had to turn down uh, uh, being Eagle Bauer in Rock and Roll High School. Oh. Because you just too too many people wanted some Deason. Wow. Get yourself some Deason. <laughs> it's a season for Deason. <laughs> Season, season. Production started with Martin Brest, and things went swimmingly until 12 days into the shoot when Brest had an on-set argument with the producers and was summarily fired from the movie. Damn. Yeah. Do you know Privy? Privy to the argument? He essentially, well, okay. Apparently, Brest was taking a darker approach to the film than the producers wanted, and when they received dailies of dour-looking Broderick and Sheedy, they took umbrage, which led to the on-set spat. Okay. Uh, They were like... Essentially, they just, it was creative differences. Uh, why it took them that long to realize it? <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, maybe they were giving him a shot, and it just kept, probably kept getting more and more dour. Yeah. And I'm, I agree with the producers this time. I agree, too. Martin Briss is a fantastic director, yeah. but this movie needed joy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because it needed... Because the thing is, Ali Sheedy's character is an adventurer, Right. She loves this adventure. You know, she wants to be a part of it. Yeah. Matthew Broderick is kind of thrust into this thing, and he knows the reality of it because he was arrested and, oh, yeah, right, you know, right. had to go through all this stuff and escape and whatever. And she's just kind of like, I'm here. Let's have fun. Yeah, yeah. But they have this really great, fun relationship, and they never succumb to fatalism. And they never right. su- they never right. give up hope that they could fix this. They never give up hope that they yeah. can solve this problem. Right. To the point right. where they, you know, have to push the adults to solve the problem. And and you, the fact that you don't need to make it more sad and more serious because no. it already is. Exactly. The whole situation is aft. Yeah, I mean it's awful thinking about the fact that the world might die. But 
honestly, if you're a teenager going through this, you're probably having some fun. Look, I yeah. remember being in super sketchy situations as a teenager yeah. that I made out made it out of them. Right. And it, it makes a great story and right. it was right. a great experience. But it just is easily with just a tiny little hair of difference, could have been a tragedy. Right, right, exactly. Uh, unfortunately, this put a screeching halt to Brest's directing career, and he did not direct for almost three years until he did Beverly Hills Cop in 84. Well, I mean, three years is bad, but it's not that bad. No, but he could have had a much bigger career um, than he did. Which, I mean, granted, Beverly Hills Cop was the hugest movie that year, yes. and he was fine, yeah. but, you know. It's just one of those. It's unfortunate. Martin Brest came out okay. He had a great career after this. I, I want to say I think the producers probably blacklisted him and, and talked shit about him for quite a while. Well, who, you know. I just don't think he handled the criticism well. And that probably was like, not. well, why do you want to work with this guy? Well, maybe it humbled him a bit. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe it did. The producers hired John Badham to take over directing the picture. Uh, yeah. Badham worked in television for years on Universal television series like Cannon and The Bold Ones. Cannon, about another fat guy. <laughs> he then directed several acclaimed TV movies, including Isn't It Shocking? In ni- I'm sorry, Isn't It Shocking? In 1973, a comedy mystery starring Alan Alda and The Law in 1974 starring Judd Hirsch. Yet again, you can find both of these on YouTube if you want to watch them. Nice. <laughs> His first feature film was The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings in 1976 about a team of enterprising ex-Negro League baseball players in the era of racial segregation. It's actually a really great film, but it has a really... What was up with these films in the 70s with these five-year-long titles? I don't know. Uh, it starred Billy D. Williams, James Earl Jones, and Richard Pryor. Such a good movie. And Richard Pryor is so young and oh, unknown yeah. in it. Yeah. And, oh, God, and it's so great. To see James Earl Jones in the flesh. Yeah. And not just... He was, he was super young, too. Super oh, skinny. And such a great actor, yeah. too. People don't uh, remember yeah, yeah. what an amazing actor he was. I mean, uh, just uh, 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 Field of Dreams. Yeah. So good. Good Lord. That's one of my favorite performances of his. He is so good at the curmudgeon and the coming around. Yeah. Another, you know, enemies becoming friends. <laughs> so I love it. It's like in the Sandlot. Uh, I love him so much. Yeah, he's great. His breakthrough came in 1977 when he replaced John G. Avildsen as the director of Saturday Night Fever, a massive worldwide hit starring John Travolta. Yeah, I'm gonna go dancing. I'm dancing. I got the fever. Apparently, uh, Batum became the guy that you hired if somebody else got fired. <laughs> like, that was the thing. Uh, he directed Dracula in 1979, starring Franklin Jella. Oh, God. Which is a fantastic movie. It is so 70s. It is awesome. I love that movie. Oh, I, same. Watching Franklin Jella as Dracula running down a hallway is one of my favorite things. <laughs> so good. Uh, and he also directed Whose Life Is It Anyway in 1981, starring Richard Dreyfus. Whose Life Is It Anyway? It's mine. Uh, that's about a guy. Have you seen that? No. Uh, so this was one of the first movies where... So uh, Richard Dreyfus was paralyzed from the neck down, mm. and he wants to die. Right. Hence the title, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Is it mine? Because I want to stop it. But the whole thing was about him getting... You know, being able to die, basically, right, right, with right. dignity. It was a very interesting movie. I think he was, was probably nominated for some Academy I'm, Awards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Batum directed a series of relative hits in the 80s, including American Flyers in 1985, starring Kevin Costner. Mm. Uh, he directed Short Circuit in 1986, starring Ali Sheedy and Steve Gutenberg. Number five is alive! Uh, still 
pissed off about that line. <laughs> uh, Stakeout in 1987, starring Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez. We're going to stick out. Oh, everybody, we're going to have some snacks, and we're going to watch to see if the criminals come home. <laughs> he moved into action movies in the early 90s and eventually focused on directing TV. I actually love the Stakeout movies, both yeah. of them. And another Stakeout. I yeah. love them both. He and Emilio Estevez, for some reason, had this insane chemistry. Yeah. And yeah. the first one was so funny and so well done. I make fun of him a lot, <laughs> but I'm a huge Richard Dreyfuss fan. He's, he's good. He's just easy to imitate. Oh, completely. Yeah. And, you know, he has a past of being kind of a dick, so it's easy to make fun <laughs> of him. But the guy is just absolutely incredible. Uh, Badham's last directing effort was for the TV show Siren in 2018. Okay. Uh, which I remember that coming out. I never saw it. It was about, uh, I want to say, I think it was about mermaids. Yes. Yeah. Several of the scenes shot by Breast remain in the final film. Uh, I'm guessing the opening probably was because it was certainly without joy. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> Turn the key, sir. Yeah. Uh, Batam said that Breast had taken a somewhat dark approach to the story and the way it was shot. It was like Broderick and Sheedy were doing some Nazi undercover things, so it was my job to make it seem like they were having fun. And it was kind of exciting. According to Batam, Broderick and Sheedy were stiff as boards when they came into the soundstage, having both Breast's dark vision and the idea that they would soon be fired. <laughs> Poor kids. I know. Can you imagine? It's like, yeah, you're finally in this big movie. Yeah, your director got fired. Yeah, I mean, and... It's not like they were big names or anything. No, no. Especially uh, Sheedy, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. did 12 to 14 takes of the first shot to loosen the actors up. At, at one point, yeah, I know. I'm, I don't know how that would loosen them up. I would just get mad of like, what do you want from me? <laughs> hey, I'm loosening you guys up, loosey-goosey. Uh, at one point, Badham decided to race with the two actors around the soundstage with the one who came last having to sing a song to the crew. <laughs> Run around the stage, whoever loses has to sing a song. Do we have to? Can we just shoot? Can no. we just shoot the No, movie? we're going to run. We're going to be here for 12 hours, and we have to do this. Uh, Badham lost and sang The Happy Wanderer, the silliest song he could think of. Uh, it's an old, uh, it's like a 150-year-old, like, folk tune. Actually good for him. I mean, this is really smart because he's, he's resetting the tone of yes. the film, and he's making it lighter, and he's making it more yeah. fun, and he's like, look, we're going to have fun on this movie. It's not going to be this dour Badham Production of da- sour dour doos, dour breast production, dour breast production. <laughs> um, <laughs> Your new production. Company. Yeah, we're gonna have fun, baby. That's what yeah. he said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Badham renamed the computer Whopper, feeling the name of NORAD's single integrated operational plan was boring and told you nothing. The name Whopper played off the Whopper hamburger in a general sense of something going whop, 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 whop. <laughs> I just don't understand. <laughs> what, what goes wop? I don't know. <laughs> I am going wop, wop. I just like that it's like John Badham's like, yeah, yeah, everything goes wop. You know, wop. Shall we play a nice game of jazz? Wop, wop, wop. Wop, wop, wop. <laughs> it was also a jo- joke based on Burger, the uh, BRGR, a real computer NORAD once used to predict war strategies. Okay, neat. Yeah, so it, it, had, it, had, it made sense. The NORAD Command Center, built for the movie, cost $1 million, making it the most expensive set ever constructed at the time. Oh, yeah. Seeing... Here's the thing, man. Like, this movie... I was a CompuKid. I even went to a thing called CompuKids. Oh, nice. Where we learned how to program, which was basically, go to home. You made a snake game. Yeah, yeah. was one of the things. But just... The technology of the time was so advanced. Like, 
Yeah. Oh my God, he's watching TV on his computer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's uh, the computer's talking. He has all these different, you know, and the yeah. games and everything. It was like, oh man, the computers are nothing like this. This is a total fantasy. <laughs> it was just so crazy how insanely uh, advanced advanced everything yeah. was. And, and you look at it now, and it's just, they didn't even have, like, the, no, no. it was just, like, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it totally made me, yeah. The one thing that it did get right was the, like, brochure of the new computers. Yeah, like, yeah. It, I just remember Dream looking at those things oh, as yeah, a kid, yeah. just like, oh, drooling. It's the new fantasy computer. Exactly. Coming to your house. But just the thought of being able to do all that stuff with your home computer, it was almost like that, uh, remember the Sandra Bullock movie, The Net, that came oh, out, yeah, and she, yeah, like, ordered yeah. a pizza from her computer, yeah. and everybody's like, oh, that's baloney. What? what? You can't do that. Nobody could do that. Yeah, Ugh, yeah. Man, How far we've come. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the producers were not allowed into the actual NORAD command center. Really? Security clearance. It's crazy. Yeah. So they had to imagine what it was like. Uh, Batum said that the actual NORAD command center isn't nearly as elaborate as the one in the movie calling the set. NORAD's wet dream of itself. Ew. Yeah. Apparently the, uh, I didn't put this in, but the, uh, uh, they're like advisors. <laughs> like when they came in, they're like, oh, if we only really had the money to do this. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's just a bunch of grappy, green-screened computers. Yeah. and um, I, I really think the NORAD Command Center is about the size of this studio. Probably. Like it is tiny. Well, now it's probably different. I, I hope so. I, I mean, actually, to be honest, honest it doesn't really upgrade. Probably, it's probably even smaller. I mean, because <laughs> back then, most of the, the – it was the computers were huge. Yeah, it's true. Hey, well, here's the thing. Also, they, they had – a tour group, yeah, I know, going I know. through with cameras Visitors. and yeah. stuff. Oh my god! When when he's sit down, sit down. now push this button. No, 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 the button! Oh my god, you blew up the world! Uh, just kidding. Uh, did you poop yourself? Uh, sorry. <laughs> Let's go get some beverages. I did the same thing to the mayor of New Jersey. Who uh, could do? Or whatever. But I know that they had to do that because it was a device to get him out of the right the right. thing, which worked. But it's just, I love how they have this. You know, Midwest tourist, <laughs> tourism group with cameras and crap all yeah. over them in the most secretive bunker <laughs> in all of the United States. Hey, only half of them actually work for the Soviets, okay? Hey, hey uh, take as many pictures as you want, guys. Uh, we're really proud of this room. Well, Would you like to see some top secret? It's like <laughs> going to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was waiting for it. Uh, War Games did well at the box office, grossing a worldwide total of $124.6 million off a $12 million budget. Oh, yeah. It it, it was huge. Yeah, and yeah. it came out at the perfect time because this was just when people were really getting into home computing and computers. Right. It was one of those perfect time, perfect place situations yeah. where – and it also kind of defined hacking and computers yeah. and stuff for a while. Yeah. War Games was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Cinematography, losing to Fanny and Alexander. Of course. Uh, sound, Best Sound, losing to The Right Stuff. Yeah, it's just like, this is the same Academy Awards that Return of the Jedi won, <laughs> or lost all these yeah. awards. Yeah, and writing, uh, screenplay written directly for the screen, losing to Tender Mercies. Tender Mercies was a really good movie. Oh, though. was it? Okay, I've never seen it. Yeah, it's, well, it's uh, um, Robert Duvall playing yeah. uh, country singer. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. So, uh, hacking wasn't technically illegal when the movie came out Do in 1983. Do that again without clearing your throat, sorry. Hacking wasn't technically illegal when the movie came out in 1983. The movie inspired Congress to create the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1984. I love when these movies change society. 
And it point out something that people, which is so weird. It's like nobody thought, who's going to hack into a computer? What's that all about? Representative Dan Glickman, a Democrat from Kansas, opened the proceedings by saying, We're going to show about four minutes from the movie War Games, which outlines the problem fairly clearly. A House committee report said, War Games showed a realistic representation of the automatic dialing and access capabilities of the personal computer. President Ronald Reagan, a family friend of Lasker's, watched the film and discussed the plot with members of Congress, his advisors, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, what is it, fellas? Do you think they could get in and do the hackings and somehow make us uh, weaker? Reagan's interest in the film is credited with leading to the enactment 18 months later of NSDD 145, the first presidential directive on computer security. Said this before when we were doing the uh, day after. Just show Ronald Reagan some movies, and he'll change his mind on everything. <laughs> we've, we've two to two so far. I, mean, I know. Yeah, they should have showed. Like I said, they should have showed him the birdcage. They should have. Uh, he would have uh, cured AIDS. <laughs> the release of this film resulted in a substantial spike in interest in computer hacking and a commensurate increase in actual penetration of computer systems. Oh yeah, because it basically people were like, "Wait, you can do this?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As a result, the industry is forced to make several seemingly obvious changes, like creating accounts with default rather than no password on newly installed systems. Yeah. Uh, this is because prior to the film's release, it was just assumed most computer systems would only be accessed by authorized persons, and the odds of someone breaking in was felt to be vanishingly low, except for high-value systems such as banks or the military. Sure, and anything that was online, because most computers weren't online back then. Yeah. You yeah. had to physically put your phone into a cradle yeah. to get on you had online. To, you had to really want to get online yes. to get online back then. Yes, and it would seem, though, that... Yeah, I mean, and if you had anything that was accessible, then you had to have some sort of security. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a video game version of this movie was made in 1984 for the ColecoVision, Commodore 64, and Atari 8-bit computer. I had the ColecoVision one. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I remember. I think it was kind of like a Missile Command type of deal. Yeah. Uh, the game started out greeting you as Professor Falcon, and you would play a game of global thermonuclear war. Hello, Professor Falcon. Where have you been all these years? Your objective was to stop nuclear war from occurring by protecting the country's various military vehicles and weapons in a time, set time limit without reaching DEFCON 1. Shall we play a nice game of chess? <laughs> yes. In November 2006, pre-production began on a sequel titled War Games The Dead Code. The Dead Code. <laughs> we tried watching oh, part of it. Good lord. It is not good. Uh, it was directed by Stuart Gillard and starred Matt Lanter as a hacker named Will Farmer facing off with a government supercomputer called Ripley. Yes, and they called it a she. Yeah. Computers don't have genders, it, Adam. It is it. It is an it. Uh, Gillard is a TV writer and director whose biggest feature film was 1993's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, the one where they go back in time. Yeah, the best one of the bunch. Um yeah, we watched about five minutes of that and then watched the trailer, and it is bad. Uh, I did read through the entire plot, and and uh, the Whopper actually makes an appearance, uh, actually becomes one of the characters, and Ripley actually tries to destroy the Whopper uh, with those bombs like we saw at the beginning yeah. you know, with the drones and the things. Like It decides, apparently, it wants to be the only supercomputer in the world. So the Whopper's uh, still around? The Whopper was being used to uh, run... Burger King? No, like Colorado Springs, like 
uh, electricity like oh net. the the grid like the, like the grid yeah thank you like the, the power the, grid the power grid thank you it was running the power grid uh, but yeah it it decides it's gonna drop bombs on it to destroy it because it doesn't want it to be any better than it or something I don't know it is time to destroy the Whopper yeah do not destroy me I am Whopper I am Ripley I will destroy you <laughs> I am Whopper I am running power I am Ripley I have control of all of the bombs and the bombs will drop on you. That is literally a scene from the movie. <laughs> Don't do it. It's still playing the games. I, uh, Matt Lanter would go on to voice Anakin Skywalker in the animated film Star Wars The Clone Wars and the TV show of the same name and other media of the Star Wars franchise. Hey, Snips. Yeah, that was totally him. I had no idea. He was great, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I really love The Clone Wars. And he was really good as Anakin Skywalker. And yeah. he was really good in the uh, evolution of the character through the series, mm-hmm. getting closer and closer to the dark side, and he did a really subtle, nice job of of uh, slowly turning the character from Anakin into Darth. Yeah, yeah, it was he was great. Uh, MGM released the sequel directly to DVD on July 29th, 2008, along with the 25th anniversary edition DVD of War Games. I remember, because I think I was still buying movies back then. I don't, the 25th anniversary. I don't know if I did... I'd have to look in the old collection. Yeah. But I do remember watching this. I think we might have I think I might have picked this up at Blockbuster or mm. gotten it on, you know, Netflix when you used to get the, oh, the, the DVDs. Disc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I got about as far into it as we got into it and was like, eh. so bad. To promote the sequel, the original film returned to selected theaters as a one night only twenty fifth anniversary event on July twenty fourth, two thousand eight. See what this could have been? Uh, an interactive media reboot of War Games was announced by MGM in 2015. The six-episode series was released in March 2018. What? Uh, yeah, I tried to find more information about it, and it's it, it's like a on it's like a an online like you kind of watch it, you kind of make decisions. Yeah. Like it's not it obviously did not set the world on fire because no one's ever heard of it. Well, the problem, the the reason why this movie works so well is because it's in the nascent times of computers and it's easier to do this. It's well, yeah, everything done in this movie was fairly plausible. Yeah, well, and especially with the fact that you could have literally done whatever they wanted because right. nobody knew what hacking was. Exactly, and and the quaint little things with the phone and the payphone and all this stuff made for a great adventure. Doing it today, there's just too much technology. There's too yeah, many it would be things. Too hard. There'd be drones yeah. and this and cell phones and tracking and all this kind of crap. And it just, it was, I don't know if quaint is the right word for war <laughs> games, but it was kind of a quainter time, a simpler time where all this stuff could work and it didn't have a lot of convoluted baloney that right. would have to, you'd have to go through now to make this type of yeah, movie. You would have to bend over backwards to make sure that something like this can happen yeah. today. I, the only way to remake it, I think, is to do a period piece. Yeah. Because yeah. That, that is what it is. You know, it's not... Yeah, it wouldn't work otherwise. Yeah, I because mean, it's just, you know, th- and it needs the kid, it needs all this stuff. And I think from what I watched from the sequel that we watched, it was just, A, we didn't have these very likable characters. Right. Especially his friend, who was just interminable. I think he ended up getting killed or something in it, hopefully. Oh, that would have been the best part of the movie. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, it was, this is another one of these movies that came at the exact perfect time. Right, right. It needed all of these, like so many of the movies this month, 
it needed all of these things to come together to actually make it work and make it happen. And it did. It's one yeah. of those serendipitous films that everything is working on its way and makes it a classic. Yeah, the last uh, a few months after the movie came out uh, in June of '83, it, it, there was the last time that we came really close to destroying the world. Yeah, and it was another one of those instances where a Russian, uh, a Soviet, just goes, "I'm not turning the key. Like I'm not doing that." And, oh, man, and saved us from destruction. This happened like three months later. There are so many. Soviet heroes that we'll never hear about that have saved us from yeah. nuclear annihilation. I'm sure there's some American heroes, too, that have done the same thing. Yeah. I, I can't imagine us not getting close and making I, that mistake. I'm positive the only reason we don't know about them is because the Soviet Union collapsed and all of that information came out. Right, and it's still classified it's, because we yeah. don't want to make it sound like there was any sort of close. Right, right. You know, whatever. But, again, if you haven't seen this movie, do it. Oh, it's so good. It is an amazing time capsule of computers in the 80s and the Defense Department in the 80s and just kind of this whole theme of this month, which is a lot to do with the Cold War and a lot to do with nuclear annihilation and the threat of a nuclear strike. And this is a much more palpable, palatable, a much more palatable Palatable. and easy to easily digestible story than the day after. Yes. And I wouldn't say a double feature with that. No. But no. uh but it really is a fun adventure with these two kids basically saving the world. It really holds up. Yeah. I mean considering it is with technology that is 40 years old yeah. and that People have no idea what it is. Like, you use a phone to get on the internet? That's weird. Yeah. But it holds up because it lives inside that world. It does. And the dangers are still around today. Uh, The dangers of nuclear annihilation. Yeah. As we've said, we haven't gone away. No, we're actually closer to midnight now than we were back then. Yeah, we are very much closer to annihilation now than we ever have been. But everyone's been living with it for 40 years. So people are like, meh, okay. Yeah. This, exactly. (laughs) We're just so complacent. Um, But if you haven't seen this movie, get yourself some showtime and watch it. You're going to have a great time. Watch it with your kids if you got kids. Watch it with your folks. They'll enjoy watching it again. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's just a fun adventure with some great acting, some great writing, and a very, very tense third act. Yeah. It does a great job of just that as the Whopper is getting the code, the nuclear launch code, and everything's going on. It's so tense. Although <laughs> Adam is so right, it's so distracting looking at Falcon with his little his, his eyes smiley. open. His, okay, come and, on, you can do this. Juan and Clay, yeah. two numbers, two numbers, three numbers. He's got five numbers. He's got seven numbers. Shut up. Yeah, we know. We, we know. know. It's up mm. on the screen. I could solve this in two seconds, but I want you to do it. I want you to feel good about yourself. It's such a great movie. I it's. Highly rewatchable. Oh, yeah. It's so good. And, and it, it, is, it literally defined that era of computers. And it did a good job of staying away from stereotyping the military and the nerds. Yeah. And it made even the, you know, Jimbo and Eddie Deason's characters, they were well-rounded characters. Yeah. They weren't yeah. just, you know, yes, there was a lot of exposition from them about <laughs> back doors. Don't give away all our secrets, Jim. But it it didn't feel like exposition. No, it didn't. It felt like you really went to this place. And they felt like real guys, you know, especially knowing uh, if you've ever worked in IT, it was very (laughs) realistic. You know, and and just a 
uh, above all else, a really fun, fun summer flick. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, we'll be back next week. We have our stepdad show. Yeah. Talk more about some June Doom. Oh, baby. And all the fun stuff we've been watching and playing. And, yes. And doing. And dooming. And dooming. Oh, the yeah. doom. Oh, the doom of it all. The doom of it all. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh. <laughs> the f***ing vice president's name, what is he? Thanks, Al Gore. Nimity Snickets. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Corbin is actually named after Peter Pan Arthy. Wow. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program, America's Funniest Home Videos, already in progress. 